0: welcome back to generals and napoleon episode 50 british general thomas graham we have a special guest for this episode joining us from the second time my good friend josh provan from adventures in history land say hello josh
1: hi guys thanks Thanks. for having me back john
0: yeah my pleasure my pleasure uh we are going to be covering a very interesting guy today, uh, Thomas Graham, general in the British Army. Uh, I, we were talking earlier before we uh, hopped on the call. Really interesting guy, don't you think?
1: He's an amazingly interesting guy. I've I've always thought so, and he's he doesn't get a lot of press. He he comes in like third for press, like, no fourth for press actually, <laughs> behind Wellington, Moore, Hill, and Hill really with yep. the British.
0: Yep. So yeah, we're going to dive into his story. Um, but before we do that, I kind of want to tell my listeners again about your wonderful YouTube page, Adventures in History Land, and your Twitter page. Um, could you briefly sum those up for us?
1: Uh, yes, absolutely. These are the places where I get to exercise my uh, somewhat unfocused mind uh, <laughs> when it comes to my interests in history. Um Adventures in History Land is a place for everybody. Everybody has one. Everybody can find one. Mine happens to be found on Twitter at Land of History and online the blog, which is being sorely neglected at the moment. I have to admit, <laughs> um, uh, adventure is just Adventures in History Land. Um, by the end uh, by the uh, end of July, my uh, manuscript for my forthcoming book, which is entitled uh, Every Hazard and Fatigue. The uh, Siege of Pensacola, 1781, which is sort of the climax of the the Spanish campaign of the American Revolution. Fantastic. Uh, Thank you. I'm I'm really enjoying the process at the second of writing it, so I'll keep you posted.
0: Well, let's jump into our subject matter. Thomas Graham, he wasn't a general yet when he was born. He was born in October 1748 in Perthshire, Mm -hmm. Scotland. He was the no, third no, no, and only nicely
1: done nicely Th- done. Thank you. Yeah, I was working
0: <laughs> on that before we we recorded, but yeah. Uh, he was the third and only surviving son of his family. Can you tell us a bit about his upbringing and his parents?
1: Yes. Um absolutely. His his father was uh, Thomas Graham of Balgowan and his mother was Lady Christian Hope, a relative of another one of Wellington's generals. Uh, mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, she was therefore the daughter of the Earl of hopeton uh, and, and the sis- she was uh, to be specific, she was the sister to the to the general hope in Weddington's army okay um, thomas uh, the elder was uh, a country gentleman he was he was what in scotland you call a laird which is somewhat equivalent to a lord mm-hmm. um but in the in, in the strata of 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 nobility at the time it wasn't seen as the same rank as the english lord right um nevertheless he was an important man uh in the district, he owned a lot of land. He was devoted to hunting and and land management, uh, and as a result, he he didn't leave his his, his estates very much. He was educated privately, um, but very expensively. Uh, he one of his tutors was a noted classical scholar uh, who had translated the works of Ossian, I believe, and his name was James MacPherson. Mm-hmm. Um, one of, gray, one of uh, young Thomas's uh, earliest memories was, uh, as a young boy, uh, a nanny taking him down to see a regiment of dragoons passing by the estate. Mm-hmm. Um, but he never, like you say, had any uh, intention of being a soldier growing up. He's very much uh, an elder son, and Thomas was the, the surviving, surviving son, and so he was going to inherit these lands, and so it was very important that he basically became a farmer.
0: Yeah, and I think it's interesting. He Thomas attends college and then he also travels extensively through Europe. He picks up languages like French, German and Spanish. And it seems like he could have lived a life of luxury. And it seems that he kind of does that right in his 20s. He's like a country gentleman.
1: Absolutely. Um, one biographer said that that tour of his was was less the traditional grand tour as it was a series of extended sort of holidays. Um, mm-hmm. Uh, he travelled in the company of his cousin uh, Lord Hope, uh, who I mentioned before. Mm-hmm. Uh, he did. He did attend Oxford when he came home, but there's no doubt he could have remained uh, happily as a civilian after his father's death, uh, just managing his estates, because he, much like his father, he he was a very attentive uh, sort of uh, landowner. Right. Um, and as the Laird of Balgowan, he was a, an important man in local affairs. And he, he did try to be useful and not just sort of a private citizen, but absolutely he, he, didn't, need, he didn't need to seek um, adventure, really.
0: Right. Yeah, it looks like, you know, he's going on deer hunts and just enjoying the sporting life throughout his 20s. But midway through his 20s, though, he, he, he gets married to his first wife, Mary.
1: Uh, What do we know of her background? Well, uh, Mary is is a very fascinating figure from the 18th century. She's not as well known as some of the celebrated women of the period, but um, she is known for a very special reason. Her full name was Mary Cathcart before she was married. She was the second daughter of the ninth Lord Cathcart. Mm -hmm. And so she was roughly from the same sort of class background as, as Thomas. Mm-hmm. Um, she was sketched in in words, so to speak, by Robert Burns, who who met her at Blair Athol, uh, which is a castle in Perthshire, and he called her the the beautiful Missus Graham, mm-hmm. and she was immortalized by the painter Gainsborough, uh, mm-hmm. and her charm and grace and and ethereal sort of beauty, if you've ever seen the portrait, mm-hmm. um, commanded the interest and pretty much the devotion. So people say of everyone who met her. Mm-hmm. Um, in the year after her marriage graham took her to uh, london to be painted by gainsborough this is how the painting was created mm-hmm. and gainsborough was so entranced with it that he not only painted the commission but a, a, a amazing full-length portrait in a in a sort of a special gown mm-hmm. which he exhibited in 1777 and that made her somewhat famous because everybody was saying my goodness, that's, that's the Cathcart girl. That's Mrs. Graham, isn't it? Right. My goodness, right. You know. Yeah. Thomas was absolutely in love with her, um, which, I, I, you know, it's not very surprising if you've ever seen the portrait. Yeah. Um, lovely <laughs>
0: <it's ugly laughs> to me. I, I, but I, yeah, I just, you know, he got married. They were having, looks like they were about to build a nice family together. Did they have any kids or no?
1: No, they they didn't have any children, um, but that didn't seem to make them unhappy or cause any difficulties. In fact, um there's a rather there's there's, t- there's quite a lot of stories about how much uh they cared about each other there's one crazy one um about mary forgetting her jewelry box when attending a ball in edinburgh and thomas being an expert rider deciding to to, to ride the roughly 42 miles back to Balgowan and to <laughs> fetch it for her it is it's just, it's just a fascinating the life they made for themselves um and to be honest, this is sort of an 18th century idyll, really, isn't it? Uh, it would make a hopelessly romantic movie, I think.
0: Yeah, yeah. And, and, and we really haven't even gotten to the good part yet. So, <laughs> no, yeah. No. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, but yeah, he does initially join the military. He instead opted to become a farmer. And in 1785, he purchased the estate of Lindok, which becomes important in his titles later on, correct?
1: It does. Um, he definitely had no interest in being a soldier at this time, and mm-hmm. as you say, uh, Linendock was purchased as a pet project. It was a it was a small plot of land mm-hmm. um, as a pet project by Graham, and he lavished a lot of attention on it, renovating the cottage there and uh, the parkland, and it will indeed become the name he is best known by uh, by contemporaries. Um, when it's given to him as a title for his
0: service. Um, but we're jumping ahead a bit there. Okay. Well, we'll come back to that. Um, here's where the story starts to get dark, though. Like, life is going yeah. well. You know, you know he's, he's rich. He's got a nice farm. He's cultivating and reshaping the landscape. But in 1792, his wife's health begins to decline. And for some reason, her medical advisor recommends a trip to France with her husband. Seems like an odd time to me to visit France in the midst of the chaotic French Revolution. And she passes away during the voyage over to France. Can you, what What, what happens there? Yeah, I'm sorry, everybody,
1: to shatter the wonderful picture we just uh, <laughs> so abruptly painted <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> painted for you. But um, that, in sum, is what happened. Um, so as to traveling to France, um War hadn't been declared yet, technically, and so travel was still possible. Mm-hmm. Um, politically, there was a lot of people in England at this time, especially liberals, and Graham was a was a liberal. He was a moderate Whig, um, and who so a lot of these people somewhat approved of what was going on on a constitutional level in in France at the time, in terms of sort of uh, curtailing the power of the king and establishing a sort of a Or, what they hoped was going to be sort of a British style constitutional parliament, sort of thing, right? Right, um, there was also, uh, I guess, most eyes were fixed on Paris from a British perspective, and so it probably seemed safe enough because they they went to the south of France, um, so they didn't they probably didn't associate the troubles as being that widespread, I guess, Um, right? Mrs. G. As uh, as Thomas sometimes referred to his wife in in letters, had mm. always been somewhat frail. Mm. Um, it's suspected that she had undiagnosed consumption from mm. quite an early period, mm-hmm. um, and she began uh, to feel seriously unwell sometime in the it could have been as early as 1791. If they had been advised that sea bathing in the south of France would be beneficial. Um, and after this, I stay in Nice, though his, his condition worsened and the attending physician, who'd actually sailed over from England, suggested a sea voyage. Um, but very tragically, she passed away from uh, whatever the condition was, probably consumption, um, near a place called um, Ieres uh, in June of 1792.
0: Right. Even more
1: tragically, Graham was not with her at the time. He had gone uh, on shore. Uh, They'd anchored and he'd gone on shore and had gone to the town because he'd been told it wasn't very far away, but it was. Mm-hmm. And he came back only to find she had died an hour before. Uh, um, it just breaks your heart, really. Because
0: um, yeah. you, uh, I mean, you just painted that beautiful picture of their <laughs> idyllic landscape. You know, She's this beautiful woman and she dies on her way to get treatment. But that's not even the worst part of the story. You know, Thomas Graham hires a barge to move her remains for a proper burial. But a group of French soldiers near Toulouse opened her coffin and disturbed her body. Can you tell me what the heck happened there? (laughs) Okay. Um,
1: Yeah. But just drop yourself in, because here we go. Uh, Graham and Mary's sister... Uh, took a bar we're, we're going to take the remains back to the mainland and had made arrangements to take the, a canal to Toulouse and then on to Bordeaux mm-hmm. um, now it was already July it had taken a while to get back to the mainland anyway because there was bad weather and he started to write home this is Thomas instructing that much of the balgowan estate should be closed up or sold off because he wasn't going to live there anymore or at least for mm-hmm. some time because he was, he was really crushed right. um, he, he didn't anticipate wanting to see anything of his old life pretty much um, mm-hmm. now the custom officer at um, Agde sur is the Erault is a river in France had already demanded Graham to open the coffin before allowing him to proceed to, to up the canal to Toulouse mm-hmm. um, but of course Graham said no what are you mad um and so he went to a place called set where the where the director of customs had pity on him and gave him the paperwork which he would need to proceed to to bordeaux Mm
0: -hmm.
1: so they reached toulouse after and after a brief rest they were going to carry on their journey and they're getting the barge ready when a group of the town guard and republican volunteers appeared and held them up Mm -hmm. they demanded they want they wanted to search the baggage now, the account I read absolutely says that they were drunk. I don't know how many of them were drunk or what sort of what how how high the altitudes were to use an old expression. But um, they 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 demanded uh, they got to the coffin basically and they demanded um, let's see what's in there. And of course Graham said, "Well, that's my that's my deceased wife. I'm not going to open the coffin." Mm-hmm. Um, and they said that, uh, and they basically fired back that. If he didn't open it, they weren't going to let him pass. Mm-hmm. Now Graham went and appealed to the mayor, who did issue an order to let him go without any trouble. Mm-hmm. Um, unfortunately, this uh, didn't seem to do any good whatsoever because, I mean, it, it's put in the biographies basically that because the revolution was happening, these people had no respect for authority mm-hmm. um, and kind of were just doing whatever they wanted, mm-hmm. and they mm-hmm. they seized Graham. Uh, threw insults at him, and declared that there was contraband in the coffin, and basically uh, wrenched it open. Mm. They they did this with such violence that they broke it, um, and they had to. So, in, so it was in such bad repair. I must I must assume they must have basically snapped the the cup, the top the lid. Basically, they must have broken the lid to get into right. it. Right, because they because Graham had to buy a new. I think it was a tin coffin or something Mm -hmm. like that. Later on, Mm -hmm. Uh, or probably lead. Actually, a new lead coffin was bought. Mm -hmm. Uh, But this is what this is what happened. They they desecrated the remains. Basically, I don't know. I don't think they messed around with it. Nothing says they messed around with the body once it was obviously there's there's a dead woman in there. Right. But the very act of basically holding. Graham under arrest and then tearing open the coffin is just the worst imaginable torture given what he's just been through. Yeah. Um, They stayed a few more days in Toulouse after this event, uh, trying to get justice. And obviously, they needed to repair the coffin. Um, But the justice of the peace, first of all, didn't want to get involved. And then when he did get involved, he tried to keep them there until the court case was settled. And Graham mm-hmm. just said, fine, I'm not prosecuting. I need, I'm need. i just getting out of here. And he pro- proceeded to Britain without further incident. Wow.
0: And it's, it's pretty dark. Okay. Well, at the age of 43 now, the widower, Thomas Graham, resolves to take a career in the military. So I guess this is kind of a, a tricky question. Do you think that he had some sort of awakening after his wife's death?
1: I think we have to understand that Graham had had already found meaning in his life when before Mary died. Right. Um, And I think her death took a lot of it away from him. Mm. Um, He hid his misery very bravely, um, but the desecration of the coffin at least did give him an enemy and the someone to hate someone to blame, you know, someone to focus on there's, there's this combination of just, losing everything that you thought you had and now having to rebuild it all i mean he he was unable to occupy his old house where he'd been so happy he couldn't really resume his old role right away as laird without just constant reminder of what was now gone right um he and this compelled him to act in the struggle you know like you say to take back control maybe chase the demons of the of his old life away and i think actually as we'll see especially in the years closely followed, I think he might secretly have wanted to die.
0: Yeah, yeah, you might be right. Uh, Well, in 1793, he sees his first military action, the Siege of Toulon, which was a loss for the British and became Napoleon's first major victory that he was associated with. How did uh, the now soldier Graham perform under fire?
1: Graham's military life is such a mess. It's so confusing to try and explain to people. <laughs> um, so right now he he's still technically not a soldier. He's still he he's he's he 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 wants to be involved in the war somehow, mm-hmm. but um, he doesn't take an actual rank position uh, at this moment. At Toulon, his his role is is very curious. It's it's a volunteer essentially. Right. And it's a volunteer because he he knows quite a lot of people in the Navy. And he sort of goes on an extended military cruise, hoping to see some action. Mm-hmm. And ends up um, in the blockading squadron off Toulon. And because of his excellent language skills, he's one of the first British, we'll say, officers, because he was sort of taken on as an aide-de-camp
0: mm-hmm.
1: um, uh, to land, although he had no actual rank um, at this time. Uh, so he was uh, but he was actively involved in the defense of the of the town. Um, and to be honest, he's, he's one of the only British participants connected with the army at least who comes out of capture and then loss of too long with any credit. Right. And he, and he really throws himself into the frame. This speaks to what I was talking about a minute ago. Um, he's really keen to get into action. Mm-hmm. uh when he can't find a horse in one occasion he 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 gets a he gets a coach uh, a cabriolet mm. and he rides that towards the sound of the firing to the to the horror of some some nearby royalist french guardsmen who, who like yell after him stop stop good god you don't go to war in a cabriolet <laughs> um <laughs> but uh, and then on another occasion graham Uh, Because you have to understand that the Siege of Toulon, there was a a very strategic hill that overlooked the defenses that needed to be defended. And Graham had identified this as a place that needed to be fortified. Uh, Mm -hmm. A lot of people thought that it could just, it was sort of an impregnable sort of edifice that could just be left as it was. And uh, not a lot of people listened to him. So he very dramatically um, scaled the hardest steepest part of this cliff of the cliffs of this hill um to prove that it could be done because in his words he was more used to hills than other people um again that's quite a dangerous risky thing just to to jump into right um and it kind of shows that he's willing to to risk a lot and then so this hill is actually taken by the french right Um, And then they have to retake it. And in the attack to retake it, he volunteers to join one of the attacking columns. Mm. And as he's moving forward, the columns come under fire. He writes quite um, a detailed account of this. Um, So it obviously had a very strong impression on him. This was the first time he'd ever been shot at in anger. Um, And a man next to him is wounded. and And he helps him to the rear and then takes his musket uh when he returns back to the fighting as he on his way he gets hit by a musket ball in the arm the right, right. arm and he he stumbles and he drops his musket and he says that but then uh, after uh, after after realizing my the bone was not broken um I picked up the musket with my left hand and continued back to 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 rejoin the battle because he he because he recognized that at such times a good example was very important to the man. <laughs> yeah,
0: yeah, but he's just incredibly brave, and it, he doesn't know what he doesn't know. Like, he doesn't know he shouldn't be doing these things.
1: No, uh, he, it's a mixture of that. He, he, he's not a soldier. He's not trained for it. He's, he right. actually writes, it's fascinating, he actually writes that he was just so interested in what was going on, he, he didn't feel afraid. Um, right. It was so curious to be in the midst of this chaos um, that he didn't feel afraid. And that as well, uh, that is why I'm also suspicious that he may not have had a great regard for his own life at this time.
0: He gets an officer-ranked lieutenant colonel in 1796 and receives permission to assist the Austrians in their Italian campaign against Napoleon, which again is a major loss for the Austrians. Do you think Graham is gaining valuable experience during these setbacks against Napoleon?
1: Definitely um the more experience you get in such matches, coming from zero pretty right. much is is, is, is going to be great uh, it's going to be great for you if you're going to try and pursue this i mean i don't even know what he's thinking at the moment uh, he's just happy to be busy right
0: <laughs> but um like napoleon's tactics and the french tactics so when he meets them later again in spain he's kind of aware of what they tend to do
1: that's an interesting, yeah. That is an interesting thought. I mean, of all the British officers that end up fighting in Spain, he will have seen more of the French than some of them. Um, mm-hmm. Has to be said. Right. Although, uh, where, in this in this instance, what happened was he unluckily ended up with the Austrian forces that got bottled up in, um, I think it's is it, it Mantua, it- and basically he has to escape. That's another epic story. It is, it's, 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 it's the man's, the man's early life, you know, right up to, you know, his romantic beginnings, and then the, the his early war service is something right out of a John Buchan novel. It's insane. But yeah, he does this his insane escape, uh, crossing rivers and disguise to deliver dispatches, and he, and he gets away. But it, we need to remind the audience as well that he's still not a Full regular commissioned officer. He's still a volunteer with the with the local rank, the temporary rank of lieutenant colonel, because he has raised a regiment of infantry Got it. Um, for the army. He's re- raised the 90th Foot, the Perthshire Regiment, and he. Uh, and interestingly enough, this is how um, Roland Hill gets his start. Mm-hmm. Um, he was a friend of Graham. Graham knew everybody. Mm-hmm. and hill was an excellent officer and graham said i want good officers in the regiment right. so i'm gonna get hill and right. that's how hill got a uh, got uh, to be a major in the army but graham is actually still without a rank but with a lot of respect it's a very very curious situation
0: yeah yeah and i you know i you know just moving the story along i he, after is briefly declared with France in 1802. He returns to England to focus on his political career. Can you tell us a bit about his political life?
1: Uh, yeah, a little. Um, he, like I said, he was a Whig. He was a liberal. Mm-hmm. Um, he, he slowly got more and more interested in politics as, his, as he went on. Uh, he'd actually been elected MP for Perthshire in 1794. He, he was fully committed to being a soldier and taking care of his regiment. Uh, but he did make sure that he didn't neglect his constituents uh, who offered a vote of thanks to him in October of 1802. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he maintained a great interest in, in getting practical reforms into Scotland, uh, especially the regulation of weights and measures and the curtailing of the malt tax. Um, and throughout Addington and Pitt's administrations, um, though, nobody says that he made any great remark. He he was very quiet in parliament Mm -hmm. and he described himself not really as a party man, but just as a supporter of, of the government. Mm -hmm. But he was, he was an admirer of James Fox, the, the more radical liberal. Mm -hmm. And he did support Catholic emancipation, um, which was the reason why he did not um, uh, stand again for the re-election in 1807, mm-hmm. uh, when it was clear that the opposition was too strong to make headway with it. Mm-hmm. And so he he then became very much more associated with the Whig Party, but also he, he tried ever more to further his military career, which was very difficult because he'd gone about it just the wrong way. It. There was a friend of his who said that basically what you need to do, you have a lot of money, you don't know how the system works. All you have to do is buy Um, uh, by the lowest officer rank in the blues in the household cavalry, and in a year or so, you'll be a colonel because that's Mm -hmm. just the way it works. Mm -hmm. Graham didn't want to be an officer, uh, the rank of an officer that was usually given to a teenager. He, He thought that because he had raised two battalions of a regiment, the Duke of York should just give him a regular commission as a colonel. Right but York had rules that you had to serve a certain amount of time at each stage of the officer sort of branch before you could do that, even buy the commissions.
0: Well, moving along in our story, because we're not even like halfway through, because he's done, Uh I mean, his resume is incredible. Um, In 1808, uh, there's an expedition going to Portugal and Spain with Sir John Moore to... Mm -hmm. Uh, help the Portuguese against their fight again uh, with France and Napoleon. Graham joins Moore as an aide de camp. How does that campaign go?
1: Not not terribly well.
0: <laughs> That's a nice euphemism. Not terribly well. Okay. No,
1: it didn't go terribly well. Um, Graham had been. Uh, after he left politics, he he, di- he did this partially because he knew he had an opportunity to join Moore's uh, staff uh, because Moore was going to Sweden. Mm. Sweden was the place that the Peninsula War, war was meant to kind of happen. Mm. Um, unfortunately for Moore, that didn't work out because Moore was a difficult guy to get along with if uh, you from a diplomatic point of view point of view, um, yeah. we don't have time to go into the foibles of Sir John Moore at the second, but he was, he was good friend with uh, Thomas Graham. Graham not being a regular officer and being a fellow Whig, he was a guy that Moore could confide in, he could get along with. Uh, Graham was very charming and he was an extra aide de camp uh, when he went to, uh, when he was rerouted to Portugal um, and he joined him on the abortive invasion of Spain which Mm -hmm. led to the retreat to Corona Mm -hmm. or Coruña, as we should probably say it. Uh, And uh, he was literally beside Moore at the Battle of Coruña when a uh, French cannonball bounced or ricocheted um, in front of Moore and hit him. The ball had actually passed under his armpit um, and all, all but severed his arm. Yeah. Um. And taken away most of the flesh from his uh, che- from that side of his chest. Right. Uh. And it was a terrible, uh, mortal wound. Um, right. Graham immediately galloped for help. Um. And some of some of Moore's last words were asking after Colonel Graham and his aides de camp. Are they well? Mm-hmm. Um. Moore also remembered Graham in his dispatches, which is the critical thing that Graham gets out of the Coruña campaign, and that is a recommendation from the dying martyr to be promoted properly. And that's how he gets his actual commission, because Moore asked for it.
0: Okay, so the British are evacuating Coruña. Sir John Moore has just been killed. What happens to our friend Graham as we're departing Spain?
1: Well, he goes back much as he he left, but um Moore's dispatches precede him and in the dispatches of the of the battle is the report is the report uh of the you know where he commands officers to the king and everything like that and one of them is Graham. uh so it's basically the the last one of the last wishes of Sir John Moore to mm-hmm. have Graham confirmed as a as a regular officer in the in the army, which is something that uh, sorry Graham has been unable to achieve uh, all the way up to this point. But uh, nobody can um, deny the the last wishes of the of the fallen martyr, and so he is finally um, sort of brought into the 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 regular army, uh, (laughs) the seniority of the regular army. and he actually soon becomes a, a general.
0: What a moving uh, story that is. Can you imagine you just lost your commanding general and then you get back to England and you find out that your commanding general has promoted you without you or at least brought you into the army without you even knowing.
1: It. Yeah, it must have been quite a quite a moment, especially as he was uh, Moore was a good friend of Graham's. Yeah. So in 1809,
0: though, he's dispatched to yet another disastrous campaign at Walcheren. Uh, during the, I believe it's the Fifth Coalition against Napoleon. What happens there? Why is that a disaster? Uh, I, I highly
1: recommend uh, listeners read uh, Dr. Jacqueline Writer's book uh, called The Late Lord, which is a biography of the, the Lord Chatham, who mm-hmm. commanded that expedition for a proper in-depth kind of idea of what went wrong. But um, You're looking at sort of a failure due to planning issues, poor understanding of the objective. Um, Chatham did not have a tremendously cohesive force. um, And and he made some logical, but in the end, poor decisions that were exacerbated by exterior problems. And this allowed the French to recover and mount a successful defense. Um, Yeah.
0: Yeah, I read, uh, you know, just kind of a swampy area. Chatham set up camp there, and Bernadotte, Marshal Bernadotte, basically just hemmed him in and surrounded him there, and the mosquitoes and the disease did the rest.
1: Graham, who is now a major general in command of one of the divisions, um, was invalided at home due to the sickness. Uh, it's a classically farcical um, disastrous British military expedition of the type that, with some exceptions, had been plaguing the British on the continent since the war began, really.
0: Mm-hmm. well for those keeping track at home uh, our friend graham has now had four disasters uh and when it comes to campaigns but i i think what's really remarkable about, about him is his perseverance just in life and in the military
1: yeah he he's a very tough man um I, he can take some consolation that he's not in command of any of these like, expeditions he's just a part of them right but uh yeah you, you'd think that being a part of all these dis- disastrous campaigns would more or less make him think oh i'll just go back to farming right right yeah <laughs> uh, you know and but yeah he
0: stuck with it and um he's later on dispatched to cadiz uh, spain which is under siege by the french why is this stronghold survival to the british to end to their interests
1: well in 1810 Cadiz was the sort of the last stronghold still in Spanish hands I believe mm-hmm. and it was where the supreme junta had fled uh, so if Cadiz fell the the French could potentially capture the new interim government of Spain right which could have been it would have been a very great blow to the war effort at the very least um it was it was very important that they keep it it's also Cadiz is quite close to Gibraltar and We all know how much the British like to keep a hold of Gibraltar. Absolutely.
0: Key to the Mediterranean. Mm -hmm. But um, the the city itself is quite unique, though. I mean, it has these massive walls and it can be resupplied by the sea. So it's not like a normal city where you can just starve it out and wait for the defenders to surrender. Correct.
1: Yes, it's a very it's a very difficult place to take if you can't lock it off from the sea. Um, And that is a, a big reason why the French have such trouble taking it. Really, but, but it goes on
0: for gosh, I think a couple of years. Uh, oh, yeah, it,
1: it's a ridiculously long siege and it ties down a lot of men.
0: So, how did how did Graham come up with a plan to raise this siege?
1: Well, um, as Graham was his role there was to assist in the defense of the city, and he he knew, or at least he felt, that if um but basically the, the defense used to be more active. And so he was uh, advising that if the opportunity presented itself, that uh, a large force should be shipped out of Cadiz um, around the French flank mm-hmm. to attack their rear, essentially. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and they had to wait for a little while for the right opportunity to, to do this. But um it did eventually occur and in that time you also have um an interesting thing arise but is um the relationship between graham and wellington uh, mm-hmm. and the fact that nobody's quite sure whether graham is supposed to be subordinate to wellington or doing his own thing
0: mm-hmm. yeah and i think that that's an interesting interesting aspect as well um but we have this this battle of Barossa, which mm-hmm. kind of surprises Marshal Victor. Now, Marshal Victor is not the most brilliant general, but he's not a fool either. But it seems like he's somewhat surprised, and and Graham inflicts three thousand casualties on him. Can you kind of tell us what happened there and why this was an important victory for the British?
1: Yes, uh, absolutely. Uh, the Battle of Barossa is is a is a fascinating battle. Um, it's so, it's, it's weirdly cinematic and it's retelling as well. It's done when Soult pulls his army further to the north of Seville, uh, which sort of leaves Victor a little bit vulnerable to an attack mm-hmm. from the garrison. But you get a controversy because Graham is not actually in command of the strike force. It's about 11,000 men composed of 7,000 Spaniards and 4,000 Anglo-Portuguese. Mm-hmm now graham is commander of the british and the portuguese but graham is trying to work for the greater good here and so he puts himself under the command under the orders of general la pena right and the 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 spanish success advance guard successfully successfully achieves the surprise on the french uh flank guards they take a strategic position uh, Graham is uh, given order. Graham at this point occupies the ridge or some position near it, but is then ordered to come down and secure the Spanish flank and rear as presumably they're going to move on to attack the French. Mm-hmm. However, as Graham is pulling his men down to occupy this new uh, position as per his orders from General La Pena, he gets information that Victor has um, rushed to. Uh, formations, I forget whether they're divisions or brigades Mm -hmm. um, I think they're brigades um, to basically take the high ground Mm -hmm. and Graham again with his IR for ground realises that if the French get hold of that position they will have cut their line, uh, they cut their supply line to Tarifa, which is where they had landed, I believe, and would basically have trapped them between Cadiz and uh, the French. Uh, It would be a disaster. So Graham, not being a scientific soldier, is exactly the sort of guy you need right there at this moment. Right. It it
0: sounds like a fluid situation. Like it's not a set piece battle. It's changing almost every second.
1: Mm -hmm. and timing is so crucial here Um, if Graham has hesitated for maybe even as much as half an hour what happens next could not have happened because Victor's men are rushing up to the high ground and coming basically down on Graham's flank Mm -hmm. so what he does is he basically gets the entire boat, he has two brigades I believe and he turns them both around as they stand basically that gets them to turn back around towards the ridge and rush back up to the top. Right. This is not at all usual, you know. This is not that no parade ground niceties here. He basically just gets them to to run back the way they came, mm-hmm. and they and they just get into position as the French are also getting on top of the ridge, and there's and and Graham is here able to rely on the. The, the strange toughness of the British infantry mm-hmm. to, to now sort of push this, this gamble into a success. Uh, the British artillery form a concentrated battery in the center. The two brigades hit the French at an optimum moment where they're unable to quite get their equilibrium. And... It's a, a a dramatic and completely surprising victory for the British. The French are thrown into disorder. And bear in mind that Graham's force, which is engaged, is about only 4,000 men strong, and Victor has thrown about 8,000 men at him. Right. Um, meanwhile, the Spanish, and I, I I like to defend the Spanish, generally speaking, I like to give them the benefit of the doubt. But General De La, La Peña does not help Graham at all.
0: <laughs> yeah, I've heard he kind of just kind of, Stance Patton doesn't do anything.
1: Yeah, but because he's technically the commander in chief, he claims the victory in the battle when he reports it to Madrid.
0: <laughs> yeah, it's a weird outcome because it doesn't raise the siege, but it does. It infuriates Napoleon. It causes Marshal Victor to have somewhat of a setback, but it, 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 it's a victory. I think maybe it's more of a moral victory because it can it shows that the British can go toe to toe with the French in this Grand Armée.
1: Oh, yeah, it's it's another one of those curious um, battles which really kind of lends you to believe that the British infantry uh, do kind of re- deserve that, that sort of invincible reputation that they have. Yeah. Um, because if you throw them at stuff, they tend to do a lot of damage even if they lose... Um, And this is what Graham was able to count on in this battle, was the stolidity of the British infantry. Um, uh, Notably also, um, one of the regiments takes an eagle, the first eagle eagle taken in battle. That's right. Um, And it's not a good day for Victor, but because the Spanish don't pursue, um, Victor is able to sort of get clear. And so the Allies have nothing else to do but go back into Cadiz, really.
0: Right. Yeah, there's a great quote. I think it's Wellington who says, you know, when I make a mistake, my troops usually get me out of it. When uh, Marshal Soult's troops make, or when Marshal Soult makes a mistake, his troops do not get him out of it. So I think it, like you were saying, the the British infantry, they can kind of repair the mistakes of some of their commanders sometimes. Mm -hmm.
1: Yeah, it's like once Sultz said about uh, Beresford at uh, Albuera. They were completely lost, but did not know it and would not run. Right,
0: right, yeah. Um, But yeah, getting back to our story, in uh, 1812, and again, I'll let you be the, the judge on this, I read that Graham is basically second in command now to Wellington and assists him in the successful siege of Ciudad Rodrigo. Now, we were talking earlier that we weren't sure if Wellington and Graham were working together well, but are they kind of getting along at this point?
1: Yes, they are. Um, there was a little bit of tension after the Battle of Talavera um, in 1809, uh, when Graham criticized the um, uh, awarding of um, Wellington's uh, title of the Earl of Wellington. Mm-hmm. But by, certainly by the time of Barotha and by the time of 1812, um, they were getting along quite well and wellington was seeing a man that could be trusted to act independently a reliable man and a man most importantly of good judgment now not to stress a stereotype which i myself am not convinced of graham also fulfills the classic um sort of uh requirements for wellington's trust i.e a man of talent and position Mm-hmm. he's of the right class sort mm-hmm. of thing. now i don't lend too much store to that exactly you know the whole weddington is a snob thing i think that's right. too, too much of a modern appreciation of what we're dealing with here right. but um graham is certainly a very well connected uh, a very well educated he's of the right family he's and and he's he's he is an instinctively good soldier and weddington appreciates this yeah so the other thing is, as you were saying, you're completely right. In 1812, the government basically writes to Wellington saying that Graham is the second in command. Mm-hmm. If anything happens to you, give command to Graham.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, so don't let anybody tell you that Wellington didn't believe in seconds in command. He had one. It was yeah. Thomas Graham. Yeah. And actually, this is proven by the fact that when Graham, spoiler alert, gets ill and has to go home, Uh, Wellington says I don't want another second in command that's what he meant by that he said Mm -hmm. basically I just want Graham
0: yeah yeah and then you know uh, Graham is 20 years older than Wellington so he's maybe like the wise old sage of the uh, the general officers here
1: yeah and by complete accident as well because his his uh, like amount of service is you know he's not seen as much action as Wellington. He's not seen as much action as as most men. Right. But uh, he is in this position, and you know, despite people being a little uppity about the fact that he is there, this sort of amateur, um, he 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 does he does good work. So it's yeah. hard to, hard to argue with that.
0: Yeah. Well, uh, let's briefly cover off on um, the battle at Vittorio in eighteen thirteen. Uh, he assists Wellington. and This is basically the decisive battle, or should I say, the basically the final battle within Spain for the Peninsula War. Can you tell us a bit what happens there? I know he, King Joseph and Marshal Jordan kind of turn it bay to, to fight the British, but it doesn't go very well.
1: No, it doesn't, doesn't go very well at all. Um... You know there was some hope for the French in eighteen twelve when they retook Madrid and uh, after the siege of Burgos when Wellington retreated in, in, very famously to to back to the Portuguese border mm-hmm. um, but Wellington now had the measure of practically everybody in Spain, uh, and he planned through all the winter this masterful sweeping manu- uh, operation um, that would completely outfox the French and a big part of this was uh, Graham's division which was operating on the flank of the French Mm -hmm. Um, Graham's task was to march through basically mountains and valleys shielded at all times from the French view Mm -hmm. and to constantly outflank whatever position they tried to take to stop Wellington coming at them from the front and he did this uh, perfectly And
0: I think that was probably difficult for Wellington as somewhat of a micromanager to kind of have this one guy be an independent command off on his own.
1: Absolutely. And it it shows how much he trusted and respected Graham uh, and Graham's judgment uh, because there were only two men in the army that he gave this leeway to and that one was Hill and one was Graham. Right. And the both of them play a very uh, central role in this much wider uh, operation where he's forced because of the distances involved and the numbers involved, there's almost 100,000 men involved in the entire operation mm-hmm. to to get this done. And it shows what Wellington can really do if he's given the resources to do it. Um, mm-hmm. It gives you a snapshot of what he might have been able to do in a bigger theater. And that was take back everything that had been lost uh, in 1812 up to the line of the, of the Ebro River and um, uh, without fighting a battle, he outmaneuvered the French. He levered them from every position uh, back to Vitoria, right? Which is and that's where Jordan and Vic, and um, Joseph uh, tried to fight. But now, Wellington is just uh, the, completely the the reverse of the the stereotype of the defensive general. He he now has them where he wants them. He constructs a multi pronged attack. Um, to envelop them and uh, he pushes them back through several positions uh, until the very, until the very last one, right in front of the city of Vitoria, where Graham's division gets across the river uh, and is threatening to cut them off uh, and completely surround them. And that's when the French army breaks and flees for its life.
0: Right. Yeah. It's just an interesting battle. And um, it would have been a greater victory, but uh, as we all know the story, uh, some of the British infantry stopped to uh, loot the <laughs> wagons that had King Joseph's uh, spoils of war. They they stopped to pick up all the mm-hmm. gold that was on the ground, and I uh, can't blame them, I guess.
1: Oh no no, uh, this is a very tempting target for any army, and um, I mean it, it sent Wellington into utter you know, <laughs> ap- apoplexy, but um, yeah, yeah, it was, it was, it was difficult to get uh, a pursuit going when all the roads were jammed with French baggage uh, that was full of, full of treasure.
0: Yeah. Well, coming full circle now in our story, um, Napoleon abdicates in April of 1814, but there's one more battle that occurs after he abdicates in Toulouse, which is, you know, where we had all of graham's drama with his wife in this long epic i mean isn't that incredible that it kind of ended there
1: it is actually and uh that's i only just actually made that connection when you said it there strangely enough as well (laughs) yeah uh that is very poetic i wonder what he thought of that um it must have been
0: gratifying and depressing at the same time
1: i guess it must have been because um uh yeah, that battle is a bruising one, and it's not Wellington's finest hour. Uh, Sult puts up a very creditable defence, mm-hmm. um, and basically elects to leave the field mm-hmm. at the end of the day because he figures he can't—he's done
0: enough damage. Um, yeah, it's just a, kind of a poetic ending there. But um, but this isn't the the end of our friend uh, Thomas Graham. Uh, what does he do in his later years after the age of Napoleon? well i mean
1: the, the age of napoleon uh he's still a little active in it to be honest uh prior to the battle of Chalouse, we should point out just because the people who are listening to this other people who pay attention to these sorts of things <laughs> sure sure um he 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 was in command of the siege of san sebastian yep. uh, brutal, before that a brutal one yeah, very brutal one, and it, this is this is where you kind of see Graham's weaknesses as a commander, and also his advanced age. Um, some people are thinking he's starting to get a little old for this sort of thing. He doesn't handle it particularly brilliantly, mm-hmm. um, and but he does he does perform well in the open open war campaigns. And then you get what then you get him being uh, sent. With a with a, a force to the Low Countries to support the Prussians.
0: Yeah, and he has uh, a step back there. Yeah, he
1: does. Um, uh, it's a real in a life full of weirdness. the <laughs> the attack on The attack on Bergen op Zoom is insanity as well.
0: In, in um, fairness to Graham, though, Wellington wasn't the the most adept at sieges either.
1: No, he, he no Graham uh, Wellington. You know. I, I have thoughts about this, and if you want to do a, a, a whole thing about <laughs> Wellingtons sieges, then we can. <laughs> but, um, yeah, Wellington, Wellington ha, had very specific criteria when he was doing his sieges, and they weren't calculated to make him look terribly good. He mm-hmm. wasn't very experienced in formal siege warfare. Um, they all had to be done very quickly. Graham's attack on op Zoom was something that nobody understood. Mm-hmm. Washington said he didn't know how Graham got in, and then having got in, didn't understand how he could have been thrown out. Right. Um, and that is essentially the summary of it. He got in when he, <clears throat> when he shouldn't have been able to. Right. And then everything went tremendously and embarrassingly wrong. Yeah. Um, which wasn't necessarily his fault. It was just a series of events that he lost control of. And after that, he does retire. Okay, he, he doesn't see service in eighteen fifteen. Um, he's not at Waterloo. Yeah, no, no. Uh, Wellington probably would have liked him to be in uh, in, in Belgium in eighteen fifteen, but he was he was tired. He was getting he was his He was having troubles with his sight. His health was failing again. Um, and this is where he gets his title. This is where he gets Lord Lidnuch, um right. when he returns in eighteen fourteen, and he devotes himself again to country pursuits and land management so you might say he has actually vanquished the demons that he sought to vanquish he's at peace now Mm -hmm. you might say um he never remarries of course uh but he uh he gets more involved in politics he he founds the united services club in 1817 he travels through europe uh he goes and meets old comrades and walks old battlefields right um Apparently, he was even offered the command of the armies of the Queen of Portugal mm. in the 1820s when he was 86. <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
0: and, uh, he had a very hard life. And I think this is interesting to me. It just shows, again, the word perseverance to me. He passes in London at the old age of 95 in 1843.
1: Yep, yep. This is, this is why this episode is, is so long. <laughs> because he lives so Yeah, I mean, talk about
0: packing your life full of adventure. I mean, good adventures in history then. There you go. There
1: yeah, you go. exactly. This is this is a classic one.
0: What do you think his legacy is though? I think that
1: uh Sir Thomas Graham, as he became, uh lived two lives. Um he got to live two lives, you might say.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh in many ways, the shot uh, that wounded him at Toulon was a sort of a rebirth, I think. Um, and his great mission in life thereafter seemed to be to either rejoin Mary in death or to distract himself by active service so much that he made himself use, so useful as to forget right. what happened. Right. Now, as I said, he never remarried, and so he had no children. So his legacy is very much his efforts to sort of improve land management in Perthshire and his offices club and his renown as the victor of Barossa. Um, and fittingly actually I think his legacy is also the portraits he commissioned of Mary mm-hmm. so that's I think his legacy today it's not as grand say as even Hills or, and certainly not as Wellington's but it stands as a very unique military and uh, sort of civilian life uh, a very 18th century life in a way I think you hit the,
0: um, the nail on the head, though. He lived two lives, and I think what I take away from it, you know, at the age of forty three, he started his career in the military, and what, mm-hmm. what that means to me is, it's never too late to, you know, seek make a, a career seek a career that you want to do or or change your life. It's never too late to change your life. Is really yeah, what I get
1: out of this. It. It's never too late to make a difference if you can find the 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 means to do so. Uh, mm-hmm. And Graham is is very much a strangely relatable figure to that because, you know, you're presented with the genius of Napoleon or the genius of Wellington, the capability of the regular officers in the army who just always seem to know the right thing to do through training and professionalism, you know. And here's Graham. Here's Sir Thomas Graham, a, you know, a patrician farmer from Perthshire yeah, who said, I'm... I'm going to make a difference and I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to get revenge on the people who, 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 you know, made the passing of my wife, such an extra trial to me, you know?
0: Yeah. Yeah. But just what a, what a life. And I, I really appreciate you uh kind of give us that insight and, and educating uh, uh, on his life. It was truly remarkable. So thank you for that.
1: No, it's my pleasure. Uh, Graham is legitimately one of my favorite characters of the, of the period. Um, Probably he could be my favorite British general that isn't Wellington, to be honest. Yeah,
0: yeah, no, it's it's quite a life. Um, one more call out uh, for your YouTube page. It's Adventures in History Land, and um, yeah, if you want to check out Josh on Twitter, is it? It's
1: at Land of History, but uh, because of the similarity in the sound, some people call me Lando.
0: <laughs> Got it. Well, I
1: appreciate
0: all of this. I it was a great episode, and uh, thank you for your time. No, thank you very much.